what would you do if you knew you were going to die soon? If you were at death's doorstep, what kinds of things would occupy your time? Are you familiar with a bucket list? It's a list of things that you would like to do before you die. There are websites and books that can help you in creating your own bucket list with lists of ideas of things you might do. In the book, How to Live Your Best Life, there are 600 recommended things to consider doing before you die. Some of the things on this list are the following. Inventing a board game. Interesting. (laughs) Learning enough Italian to understand opera. Swimming with the sharks. Sounds like a nightmare to me, but on the list. Learning to salsa dance. Now this one would be perfect for Lenny Mathiah to add to his bucket list (laughs) to better utilize his personality here at Redeemer. (laughs) Learning how to play the harmonica and visiting the wreckage of Titanic aboard a submarine. (laughs) All on this list of 600 things to consider doing before you die. Those are just a few. What would your list be? If you took time today to write down the things you would like to do before you die, what would be on it? What if instead you knew you were down to the final 24 hours in your life? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what kinds of things would occupy your time today? Would you panic? Would you rush home to see your family? What would be your 24-hour bucket list? Who would you run and go see on the last day? What would you say to them? To your friends, to your family, to God. Well, this morning we get a glimpse into the last 24 hours of Christ's life. It's his last night, and we have the privilege of looking in on how he spent his final hours before being arrested. We get a, get a glimpse of how he occupied his time and how that reflects what's most important to him. So this morning, as you know, we are beginning a three-week study in one of the most profound chapters in our Bible, John chapter 17. So if you want to turn there with me, John is the fourth book of the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, and Luke Then we get to John. These first four books comprise a section called the Gospels. And it is here that we see Jesus in action. We see him living on the earth. We see him living in poverty, working a tough job, preaching sermons, praying. We see him falsely condemned, betrayed by a friend, beaten and killed. We see God in the flesh. The Gospel of John is in particular, rather special, because 80% of its content is unique, not written in other places in the Bible. Whereas the first three Gospels are quite similar, sharing about 60% of similar material, and are often called the synoptic Gospels, meaning the same. So it is in this book that we end up getting an inside look into the last few hours that the other Gospels don't necessarily give us. Because the author, the apostle John, was in the inner circle with Jesus. Along with Peter and James, the three of them knew everything that Jesus did. 
He was with Jesus every step of his earthly ministry. He was with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. He was with Jesus when blood was dripping while Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sat next to Jesus, right next to Jesus at all the meals. And he was now here with the rest of the disciples on the last night of Christ's life. So what we get this morning is a front row seat. In particular, chapters 13 through 17 make up a section within John's gospel called the Upper Room Discourse. It takes place right before Jesus is arrested. And these are Christ's final words of instruction to these men whom he has ministered with. Well, this morning we're going to look at the last chapter, or the beginning of the last chapter, chapter 17, which is actually a prayer. It comes right after the teaching, and it's a full chapter of prayer. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in the Scripture. One man has said that this is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. Now, I would agree with this statement because it is in this chapter that we are permitted to overhear the Eternal Son talking to the Eternal Father while on the brink of the worst day of his life. He's about to be arrested and persecuted and beaten, taken to the cross the very next day, destroyed in front of his enemies and in front of those he loved the most, like his mother and others. He would face the wrath of God for sin he did not commit. And we find out, knowing that was to come the next day, we find Jesus here praying in these last hours. So let us look at these first five verses this morning and we'll see how Jesus prayed for himself. Look with me, starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This beautiful text this morning is going to answer three questions for us. Who is Jesus? Secondly, why does Jesus pray? And then, what does Jesus pray? Who, why, and what? We'll spend most of our time on this first one, who is Jesus? And we'll find this morning that this sermon is heavily theological because these first five verses are so dense, so rich. There's so much to look at. Some of the most incredible verses in the Bible. In fact, I would say it's one of the most descriptive paragraphs in the Bible on who Jesus is. So hang with me here as we delve into specifics here, as we look at seven things on who this Jesus is. Well, before I go through this list fundamentally, this 
scripture here, these five verses, tell us one main thing about Jesus. That this man is in fact God in the flesh. It will show us this remarkable truth in seven different ways. And and I encourage you just to worship God. We talk about worshiping God through singing and praying, but we also worship God in hearing God's word taught. And as, as we go through this description of who the Savior of the world is, I'd encourage you to worship God this morning. So seven things about Jesus. One is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. We see an incredible statement of pre-existence. Look back at verse 5. Jesus is praying for the glory he had with the Father before the world began. He's saying here that he was present in the very beginning. And we know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus was present in creation. In fact, he was the agent of creation. He's saying, remember back in Genesis 1-1 when it says, in the beginning? See, in the beginning, I was there. There's never been a moment I haven't existed. So we look here at this section in particular, verse 5. We have one of the strongest statements that Jesus is in fact God and claimed to be God. This whole chapter just oozes with, with comments and thoughts by Jesus that he was in fact God. So if you come across anyone that claims that Jesus is merely a man or a prophet or one of the created order, point him to this text. Jesus is saying he existed in the beginning of time. He was there. Only God can say that. Only God has no beginning. That leads us to the second thing we see about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Of God. See, in verse 1, we see Jesus refers to himself as Son in reference to the Father. He again mentions Father as the recipient of his prayer in verse 5. We know from other scriptures that Jesus is in the same way God as the Father is. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. For Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So what we encounter here is that Jesus is indeed God. We encounter here what Christians throughout the centuries have called the Trinity. Father, Son, and we see in other places in the scripture, the Holy Spirit. Each is God. God is one. Wayne Grudem has defined the Trinity as God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Now to say that each member of the Trinity is a person does not mean that God the Father or God the Spirit became human beings. Rather, it means that each member of the Trinity thinks, acts, feels, and relates because they are persons, not impersonal forces. Now this morning we can't go into a detailed study of the Trinity We can say, as Burke Parsons says in the article that we've put in the bulletin this week, that no mere man can comprehend God completely. But the mistake is often by the people of God, mistake is by by Christians in thinking that we cannot comprehend God rightly. So we know that God is Trinity. We see that in the scriptures. But to be honest, we don't know exactly 
how that works, do we? And I, for one, as I ponder the greatness of the triune God, I, for one, am glad that it is a mystery. See, God would not be God if his creation understood everything perfectly. If we understood the vastness of a holy God, we would be God. So I, for one, get comfort in the mystery of God. And we are encouraged by it at the same time, It's important for us to understand rightly. So I encourage you to read that article and to feel free to ask us for other resources on it. So that's the second thing. Jesus is the Son of God, member of the Trinity. Thirdly, Jesus shares the Father's glory. He shares the Father's glory. Jesus was not only in the beginning as the Son of God, but he shared the glory with the Father from the beginning. The Bible takes glory very seriously god takes it seriously and isaiah 42 8 says i alone am god and i share my glory with no one see what jesus is saying here is that i am god in the flesh i share glory with the father a straight up claim that he is in fact god Just god shares his glory with no one that's the third Thing we see here. The fourth thing is that Jesus is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. In fact, the first thing we see in this prayer in verse 1 is that Jesus tells us, that the, tells the Father that the time has come. The NIV says time. Many other translations here say hour. This hour in the book of John always refers to the hour of Christ's death. And he says throughout the book that his hour has not yet come. All the way from the beginning of the book, we see in John chapter 2, we see at the wedding in Canaan that he tells his mom the hour is not yet here. But now, here, in the beginning of chapter 17, he says the hour is here. The hour has come. So what he's praying here, what he's asking the Father, is he's asking the Father to send him to his death. Now is the hour that I glorify you, the Father, by dying. It is this very hour that Jesus came. It is the hour that has been anticipated from eternity past. We get that from Ephesians chapter 1, when it says that we were chosen in Christ from the very foundation of the world. In fact, the entire Bible points to this hour. From the very beginning, we see this, right? We see it with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God took an animal and slaughtered it and clothed their nakedness with the skin of the animal, looking forward to the bloody sacrifice that would come one day to save them. We also get a glimpse of the gospel after Adam's sin. Genesis 3.15 looks forward to this hour when it says that the serpent's head would be crushed and that the heel of the one who crushed him would be bruised, referring to Christ's death and Satan's defeat. In Leviticus, we see that every animal sacrifice was pointing forward to this hour. There's a reason why Leviticus reads kind of boring. Have you noticed it? It's kind of boring. It's just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Even as you read it, you get tired of it and you want it to end. But see, what those sacrifices showed the people of God is that you have to keep doing it. These sacrifices don't ultimately forgive you of your sin. And they pointed forward to the sacrifice that was to come in Christ. In the feast of Passover that Luke read, 
earlier, pointed to this hour. See, as believers put blood on their doorposts of their houses, as they did that, their firstborn sons were spared death in that final plague there in Egypt. They were a people delivered from bondage by faith through the shed blood. So they were saved through faith in the shed blood that was to come. See, that blood, blood on the Passover pointed them once again that they needed to be saved by blood, by sacrifice. And Isaiah sees this as well. Looks forward to this hour when Christ would be wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities, and that with his stripes we are healed. See, the, the entire Old Testament pointed to this hour when there would be a sacrifice for the payment of sins. A promise had been made in the Old Testament that a Savior would come. And now in the New Testament, we see that this promise is indeed kept by God. Promises made are promises kept. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles are, are designed to go hand in hand. So promises made are kept. And here, Jesus could now say that this hour that all of eternity past had been pointing to was now here. It was time for him to die and for others to be saved. In fact, Jesus had known this from eternity past. He had designed it with the Father. It wasn't a surprise. Before a single person was created, Jesus joyfully submitted to the plan of salvation for mankind. Jesus is all-knowing. He planned it. He knows about it. Not only that, the fifth thing is that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. In verse 2, it says that the Father granted authority over all people. Jesus was in control over everyone. He was in control over the men who arrested him. And ultimately, he was in control of the men who nailed him to the cross. At any moment, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. Not only that, but we read in the Gospels that Jesus controlled the winds and the weather. He could feed thousands with merely a couple of loaves and a few fish. He could walk on water and calm the waves. Jesus was in complete control over his entire life, and the entire earth. He's sovereign. Not only that, but six, we see that Jesus is the giver of salvation. The giver of salvation. He was sovereign over everything, including the giving of salvation to those whom the Father has chosen. Notice again the relationship between the Father and the Son in verse for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him Jesus here is talking about believers that the father gives authority to the son to give eternal life to those the father has given to the son do you see what's happening here in essence every believer is a gift from the father to the son Jesus' authority to bestow eternal life extends only to those whom the Father has given to him. Now this indicates a kind of subordination of the Son to the Father. 
Now, they're both God, but in the Trinity, Trinity, each member has a distinct role. As in creation and redemption, Jesus is the Father's agent who gives eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. We see Jesus says this in chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the giver of salvation, and he alone can give it. Which leads to the seventh and final point, is that Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is the sent one. Look at verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Because there is no way for man to be saved apart from Jesus. Jesus had to come. For the Bible says that none is righteous, not even one. And that all have broken God's commandments and deserve death. We would be left to die. The Bible says we are condemned apart from Jesus. And so Jesus was the sent one to the earth to die the death we couldn't to save us. And if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, we are so, so thankful that you're here. We're thrilled that you're here this morning. We'd encourage you to keep coming. Just take your time, investigate the claims of Christianity. We study the Bible each and every week. So as you come, you get to learn more and more about God. So you're always welcome. But I do want to encourage you this morning that these verses are the essence of what Christianity is about. It's not that you reform yourself by trying harder. It's not getting inspiration so you can do better. It's about living for a whole new purpose. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace that you are saved through faith. See, we have to stop trusting ourselves. And if you don't know Jesus, you have to stop trusting yourself and acknowledge that you've tried to save yourself by doing good works. Or you've just rejected God altogether. Either way, the Bible calls you to repent, to turn your life over to God, to acknowledge that what you've done in the past cannot save you. Furthermore, the Bible says that to be saved is to repent and then believe that it is Christ alone that can save you. You need to trust him completely for salvation. And I encourage you to do that today, even this morning. You see there in verse 3, it says to know God. That's eternal life. And to know God is to be in a relationship with him. And that has started when we believe in Jesus and turn from our old way of life. Do it this morning. I encourage you. So who is Jesus? Just in these five verses alone, we see that he is the eternal, sovereign, all-knowing Son of God who left the glory of heaven and was sent by the Father to give salvation to those who would believe. In these five verses, we learn all that about Jesus. How remarkable. It's it's incredible how dense these five verses are and it ought to move us to worship this morning that we have a God like this that we have a Savior in Christ who came to this earth. It ought to move us to praise Him. For He is mighty 
to save and mighty to be worshipped. And yet at the same time, it should be absolutely startling to us that Jesus prays. Yet the scriptures tell us that Jesus would wake up early to pray by himself on the mountainside. Scriptures tell us that Jesus would, would spend all night praying at times before the choosing of the disciples. Jesus prayed all night. He was constantly praying. And here he was praying before his arrest. So the second question I'd like to ask this morning is, why does Jesus pray? If he is the eternal, sovereign, all-knowing Son of God, who left the glory of heaven, sent by the Father to give salvation, why would Jesus pray? And one obvious answer might be because he knows his death is coming, it's imminent, the hour has now arrived. But we see Jesus praying throughout his ministry. But here he is about to face the most cruel of deaths. He will be spit on, stripped naked, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and then he would be nailed to the cross to face the most cruel death on the planet, reserved for the most hated criminals. In fact, during crucifixion, kids were not allowed to be there because it would scar them for life. But it wasn't just the pain and humiliation of the crucifixion that was coming, but that when Jesus would die, he would die alone. So he's on the verge of dying alone as he prays. He is about to be deserted by his friends, by his disciples. Peter will say, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Even those closest will desert him. But even worse, he was forsaken by the Father. He would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was on the verge of being forsaken. It was the only time Jesus would ever pray to the Father and not call him Father. See, other people were crucified in the Roman Empire, but what happened to Jesus happened only once. God the Father, judge and ruler of the world, poured out his wrath on one person while he was on the cross. Jesus was forsaken. He was cut off from the Father, took the penalty for our sin upon himself. So as Jesus prays, he is saying, Father, the time for all that is near. But what's shocking, what's shocking here that he's praying because he knows what's going to happen, doesn't he? He's sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. It didn't sneak up on Jesus. He knows the details of his crucifixion and death, even though it is going to be painful. He knows what's going to happen. And yet he prays. I think this reveals something very important to us as to why we pray and why Christ prays here. We tend to pray when things are in doubt, don't we? When we don't know the answer, when we don't know what's coming. I saw this in my own life this past week. I had already started working on this text earlier in the week when on Monday evening, our three-year-old daughter Eliza fell on our tile floor and cut her chin. I looked at it and I couldn't tell how bad it was. I was thinking, oh, it's not so bad. Let's just give her a lollipop and kiss it and tell her it's all better. See, if there was ever a person who likes to avoid going to the doctor, it's me. <laughs> Sometimes just being in the, do- in the doctor's office makes me sick. And if I see a needle anywhere in the office, if my, eye, if my eye makes eye contact with that needle, it's likely that I will faint. So I need to get in position and lie down that very moment. So I really wanted to protect my daughter from being subjected to such treatment. And this is precisely why I don't make medical decisions in our family. 
<laughs> I leave that to Gloria. So rather quickly, Gloria decided to take Eliza to the doctor, and I stayed at home with Nora. Those minutes after they left were excruciating. They seemed like hours, and I badly wanted to be there with Eliza to comfort her, to hold her, to whisper in her ear that everything's going to be okay, and to pray for her. But I couldn't. I was stuck at home, utterly helpless. You know, would she be brave when she faces those needles? Was her scar going to be okay? I wondered. So I grasped my phone as hard as I could, held it there ready for any update, and then finally I got an update, got a message from Gloria saying that the first doctor they went to couldn't fix it and that they would have to go take her to another hospital to go see a plastic surgeon. I thought, oh no, my daughter's only three and she's going to have plastic surgery. (laughs) How bad is her cut? I didn't think they needed to build her a new chin. I mean, I like her chin. It's a great chin. I thought she just needed a Band-Aid. Apparently I was way off. Well, then we got further word that day that they were going to have to give her gas, put a gas mask on her before they would fix her chin because she wasn't cooperating, because she was putting up a a fuss. They needed to do this. And at this point, uh, I was starting to freak out a little bit, and Nora was a little uneasy. She was sitting there next to me, and we started praying fervently. Here's my 18-month-old daughter next to me praying, and Nora's pretty, pretty cute when she prays. She keeps her eyes open, kind of tilts her head down, and kind of frowns, kind of squints really hard when she prays. But I looked over to her while we were praying, and I just saw tears just flowing down her little face. See, Nora had watched and seen the, the accident, and as we, we prayed, even this 18-month-old girl faced the emotions of not being there with Eliza and crying. See, obviously we were both sad in that moment. We felt utterly helpless to do anything. We couldn't even be there with Eliza to comfort her. Now, have you been in a situation like this? One where you were totally helpless to fix a situation? You couldn't change a thing and you pray and ask God for help? Now, it was in the midst of this trial and Gloria told me to make sure to tell you that Eliza's okay. They, she needed three stitches. They did it, did it fine. Everything's working out great. She's playing in the children's ministry right now, running around with a little Band-Aid. But what I realized in the midst of this trial, I realized that night that this was my most fervent prayer time of the day. Sure, I had prayed, but not this seriously. I had rediscovered something about myself that day, and perhaps something about you as well. Perhaps you can relate to this. That we often pray, that the way we often pray is to treat God like a cosmic vending machine. Meaning that we go to God just to get things, things that we want. So we we put a Durham in the vending machine and then we we click how we want God to answer the prayer and we click the button. Then we put another Durham Durham in the vending machine and we click another button and ask God to answer our prayers. So when when we pray in this way, we're not sure necessarily what the, the, the final outcome will be. So we tell God what we want, don't we? We pray a one during prayer and ask God to give us what we want. We pray in this way. When we pray in this way, we conform God to our agenda. Jesus prayed the other way around. Not to conform God's agenda to his, but Jesus prays so that God, the Father, would conform his heart to the Father's agenda. See, we often pray for God to get us out of trouble or to heal our daughter 
which is okay. God tells us to pray for these things in the Bible. But we often pray only in those times. Jesus prays, as we see here, to get more of God while he's in his troubles and to give the Father glory. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he's about to die. Certainly needs strength. Certainly needs help. But what we praise for here is that he would have much fellowship with the Father, that he would have glory with the Father. And that leads us to the third question, the specific part of his prayer. What does Jesus pray? What does Jesus pray? You may have noticed that Jesus actually prays only one thing for himself. Do you see that? Look at verse 1. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Then he reiterates the same thing in verse 5. Five times in these verses, he mentions glory. Do you see that? That he is most concerned with. This is his biggest concern. It's God's glory. See, to glorify means to reveal. It means to make known the true worth of something. To make something look great. So Jesus is saying, Father, make me look good so that I can show the world just how glorious you are. And the only way to do that was for the Father to bring Christ back to him. To do that was to raise him from the dead and bring him back to that radiant splendor he had before the world began. So Jesus is asking the Father to glorify himself, take him back to glory, for he wanted to be with the Father Now, if this sounds like God is glory hungry, I encourage you to think about it this way. If God is truly the supreme God of the universe, and if the only thing that could bring people ultimate happiness is knowing and loving him, then the thing that should most consume God is that his glory shines forth throughout the entire earth. So it is here in Christ's darkest hour that instead of praying for strength for himself, Instead of praying for wisdom, he is praying, Father, I want to be in glory with you. I want God. That's what he's saying here. Now, would this be your prayer before your darkest hour? Perhaps prayer would make your list of things to do on your last 24 hours here on earth. But what would you pray? Would you pray merely for the needs of the moment, or would you pray for God to be glorified? Would you pray that you would be in fellowship with God? I encourage you this week in conclusion that as thousands are praying and fasting in this country, that you would check your own prayer life. Do you have one? Is it consumed with temporary wants and desires? Or does your prayer life revolve around the glory of God? Are you obsessed with honoring God in all that you do, so much so that even your idle thoughts are consciously thinking and centered on this one desire, oh, that I might glorify you. See, that's what Jesus prayed. He prayed for God's glory to go forth, which is the reason that each and every one of us ought to live each day. Well, over the next two weeks, We're going to dig deeper into John chapter 17. And we'll see what Jesus prays for his disciples and what he prays for us. But today led kind of 
paved the, the groundwork. We'll see four more ways that we are to pray for ourselves. But this is the foundation today. Pray for God's glory and worship God this week. I encourage you to look back at this text, worship the Savior that we have. Well, I look forward to next week as we dig deeper into the second part of this prayer. Well, let us now together go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want more of you. As your beloved children, that is what we truly want. Forgive us when we are distracted by temporary, earthly things. Would you, by your grace through Christ, give us the faith we need to pursue your glory and not our own? We worship you for who you are. and We magnify you for what your Son has done on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus and his humble submission to your will on the cross. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who enlivened our hearts and minds to see the magnificent truths of the gospel this morning. Please make us aware of your glory this week that we may continually praise you and would we seek to revel in your glory every moment of the day. It is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.